Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Paris Goodyear-Brown, who will discuss play therapy and attachment issues. This is part one of a two-part series with Paris, so be sure to tune in next week for part two. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm so excited about my guest today. I'm going to be speaking with Paris Goodyear-Brown, who is a licensed clinical social worker and also a registered play therapist and a registered play therapist supervisor. So um, Paris um, is going to be sharing with us about um, her specialization in uh, working with both attachment and trauma issues. Um, she has a specific form of play therapy she has developed called Trauma Play. So we'll be hearing about that. Um, she also has a lot of other experience, several books. She is an adjunct instructor uh, at Vanderbilt University and um, has done lots of training and consultation both in the United States and abroad. So I am really thrilled that she's going to be here with us today. I do uh, want to mention her books, which we will also talk a little bit more about in the podcast. Um, but she has one called um, The Handbook of Child Sexual Abuse, Identification, Assessment, and Treatment, Play Therapy with Traumatized Children, A Prescriptive Approach, and The Worry Wars, An Anxiety Handbook for Kids and Their Helpful Adults. Uh, she has shared with me several uh, children's books that she has also worked on. So I am looking forward to this discussion to, with uh, Paris today. So happy that each of you are here to join us. So uh, Paris Goodyear Brown, thank you so much for being here today. And I would like uh, if you could share with the listeners a little bit about your background and how you come to this work. I shared a little bit about you uh, before you came on um, some of your work, but it's nice to hear your your perspective on your journey into this uh, attachment-based uh, work. Sure, sure. Well, so I, um, I I went to Duke University for my undergraduate and got a double major in drama and psychology, which I um, I often joke um, equipped me to do absolutely nothing postgraduate <laughs> <without> <laughs> except pay off loans, right? <laughs> right. Without some sort of advanced degree or um, I was going to go be a Broadway star, but then I really felt like that wasn't giving back as much to the world as I wanted to. And so um, I moved to Nashville at that time and um, was really looking. I knew I liked kids and working with them um, and needed a job and got a job in a program called BAP, um, the Behavioral Adjustment and Achievement Program. Uh, at Dee Dee Wallace Center at the time. And um, that was all for dysregulated kids ages six to 16 who are at risk of being kicked out of their regular schools for hitting and spitting and biting and, you know, all those kinds of big, big behaviors. 
uh, and they would, my, my first job with them was um, as the assistant counselor, which meant that I drove the van. That was my job. <laughs> so I would drive the van to the inner city school, uh, pick up the kids, take them to our uh, treatment center, and we would do an hour and a half of group treatment, which at that time was pretty behaviorally focused, right? I mean, 20 some years ago, that was kind of the big push at the time. Um, and even with that behavioral focus, I, I fell madly in love with those kids and that mm -hmm. population um, and really got to see as I would drive them back to their homes into the inner city at the end of group time, um, usually just one adult, perhaps two, and a, a van load of dysregulated children. Uh, as they would get closer to the source of the fear, we would see those behaviors escalate again, um, really no matter what we had done during the group time that we'd been together. And so that fascinated me, and I decided to go back for a graduate degree in social work, um, in clinical social work. And, uh, and I don't know about your initial training, but for mine, you know, we learned all about the ecological perspective and about differential diagnosis and stuff, but still no one taught me in my graduate program what to do with a three-year-old who's trying to pee on me from across the room um, or throw chairs at me or those kinds of things. So when I got out of my graduate program and got my first job, which was at the therapeutic preschool at that time, and that was all for three to five-year-olds who had already been kicked out of their regular daycares for mm. hitting and spitting and biting and things like that. And, uh, we really didn't know what to do with those kids. There wasn't a therapy program built in. There was a day program, but not really a therapy component. So I went to my first um, conference on play therapy that year, desperately searching for answers. And it was in Orlando, Florida. And um, again, fell madly in love with the field and really mm -hmm. do that play is the primary language of children. I would say they tell us first through their behavior, but then through their play, we can access both left and right brain awesomeness that's not available in any other medium really for children mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so i went chased all around the country at that time there wasn't a whole lot of training in tennessee so um ran around to get my registration in play therapy so i'm now a registered play therapist supervisor mm -hmm. and a clinical social worker and then found as i worked in the inner city schools with lots of lots of dysregulated kiddos that um, the kind of traditional approaches that might, like TFCBT, for example, that might work with a discrete traumatic event, these significantly complex trauma kids um, needed a lot more skin on the intervention. There had to be a lot more kinesthetic involvement and a lot more connectedness between caregivers and children in order for them to learn. Um, and then as I pursued an understanding of bottom-up brain development and all of the aha moments that we've been having in neurobiology recently, um, just shifting some things, beginning to create interventions that are play-based, kinesthetically grounded, left and right brain both, um, you know, taking advantage of hemispheric uh, interactions, um, built um, at first just interventions for anger management and emotional literacy and coping skills and those kinds of things. And then over the years had um, clinicians saying, these are awesome and they're working, the interventions, but I'm a little lost, especially new clinicians, about where they go in a continuum of treatment. Um, mm -hmm. That's sort of how the flexibly sequential play therapy model that we now call trauma play evolved. Right. right. Clinicians say, these are great and I need more structure. Um, so that's sort of where things have evolved to at this point. Um, as part of that, trauma play, as the name of the model may make it sound like it's trauma specific, 
but it really is a trauma and attachment model in the sense yeah, that that comes across very clear as I was reading your material. Good, because it's uh, I think we have I think we still have some confusion in the field about there being um, and maybe I should say it this way, it's a little suspect to me whenever I'm working with other play therapists or other clinicians who are doing trauma work with kids without parental involvement or without significant parental involvement. And I really feel strongly that helping parents make the, the paradigm shifts to parent in different ways to these hurt children is, is where is the ball game really, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It's, um, it's a, a, a dilemma too in, um, it's sort of like, I always say the attachment world and the trauma world, they're like parallel universes, you know, like attachment researchers and, and um, people who've been mentioning like Miriam Steele and other people, they're not at ISTSS or the big trauma conferences. It's, it, it's sort of like they're, they're these parallel universes. Um, it's very interesting to me. Um, and, you know, as clinicians, I think we're constantly trying to like, figure out where both fits in, you know, and how do we draw from both of those? I don't think the research has been very well integrated for us who are trying to practice, oh, and again, what I call the parallel universe of attachment and trauma. No, I think that's true. And, um, and I think the grounding, and you know, especially as we're developing trauma play more and more deeply, um, help, figuring out what are the foundational pieces for people to understand. So, and, and I think that's where the scaffolding gets built, right, is in understanding all the attachment-based concepts, the trauma-informed care concepts, and what's happening neurophysiologically for kids, and then how do we maximize. And I think play is one of the primary answers for that. Mm -hmm. On, because it's releasing all of that yummy neurochemical cocktail whenever yeah. a child and a caregiver are playing together. Yes. It, uh, the cortisol massive wash that happens uh, to the um, traumatized brain. Um, really, I find it almost like a neurochemical boxing match, the, the playroom environment, for whether that's in someone's home, in someone's playroom, a, a professional environment, or even just outdoors in nature with a child and a parent. Mm-hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I, I love um, your emphasis on the importance of parent involvement. And, you know, I think um, being trained in child parent psychotherapy, um, as well as their play two very strongly dyadic models, although very different. Um, and the idea that um, children heal in the context of the parent child relationship. But now we're also learning adults heal in the context of attachment relationships as we see with work with couples and so it's not just children you know it's this this relationship with the therapist is, is not um i mean bowlby taught us we can be a safe haven and secure base and the the mother with the child is our model for a therapist but we are not primary attachment figures you know it's different you know and and so i i really like hearing you emphasize that because we hear so often, you know, of, of parents dropping children off um, and coming back after the appointment, you know, they run in. And I, I know for years when I was a therapist in foster care, foster parents would drop kids off, go run some errands, pick the kid up. Yes. And, I mean, when I started, I didn't know really any better. Um, you know, um, I, I knew I, I knew what I was doing uh, 
when I was doing non-directive play therapy and some of the things I, I, I was trained in with these kids, I knew that wasn't working, but I still didn't understand in terms of the chaos in the, in the playroom and children running away and, and throwing things at me and things like that. But mm -hmm. I still, you know, I was only just learning about the, the importance of the dyad and the attachment. So that's just so wonderful to hear you say. Yeah. Well, I think, I don't know. I, I think the longer I do this, the more I think that, um, for me, the main change agent in, um, in any of this work is delight. And it ends up being a parallel process so that I'm delighting in the parent so that the parent can delight in the child. And now at Nurture House, we're also, you know, I feel like the supervision staff, our job, and you do a lot of supervising too, so I'm, I'm sure you feel the same, that our job is to put arms around the clinicians in the same kind of ways that we want to see them be able to put arms around the parents to put right. arms around the children. So it's all that delight piece and um, the idea that parents come so often broken and exhausted and just by the time they come to treatment, they, they feel often very uh, defeated in uh -huh. situations and to have the clinician delight in the parent as well uh -huh. as modeling delight in the child. A lot of these parents have no one telling that their child is delightful you know, school environment, the whatever faith environment they have, soccer teams, whatever, everybody's complaining about the child's behaviors and, and so forth so that those parents have gotten to where they have that pit of dread in their stomach when they hear the phone ring. Um, awesome. And so we may be the first people who get to go, wow, she is so amazing. There's so much that real child in there, you know, has so much um, that we can contact, so much we can connect to. Parents can begin to go, oh, I, and, and they can shift the way that they see their kids as well. Um, even before we start working on any paradigm shifting around what a traumatized brain looks like versus a, and I don't know about you, but it, it feels to me with, when I'm working with different kinds of families, um, and I'm curious about your experience, if you find this too, that the families who have adopted children after they've successfully raised their own biological children are the ones that can sometimes be the most challenging to shift um, in terms of their parenting strategies because they had securely attached kids for the most part who that traditional kind of slight sting and course correction and all those things worked really well. And now they have, you know, doctors and lawyers and whatever as grown kids and very hurt children they've adopted now. And those strategies aren't working the same mm -hmm. because the same trust foundation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I, uh, that's such an interesting point, Amber. I think I've seen it go both ways. I've seen that, you know, this worked with me, this worked with my children, and they're all in college now, or whatever, you know, this, I know this worked, but I've also seen um, uh, biological parents who will say, the only way that I knew I was not a complete disaster and a failure and defective was because I parented these other children and they're okay. Mm. So when I've had the parents say that to me, I think, what about the parent who is only parenting these children? That's right. And, That's and right. doesn't have that to fall back on. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think it yeah. could be both ways. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think the, um, as I think about the attachment cycle and we don't, I don't think we talk enough about this with the feedback that parents get in the process. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, up seven times in the middle of the night and 
crying and, and maybe having meltdowns and exhausting for the parent, but then the parent comes home and they prefer the parent um, and they smile and, and snuggle with the parent and that helps the parent stay in there. If right. all, doing all the time is parenting a child who's saying, you're not my mom, you have, I mean, right, right. It's difficult to stay in there. Yes. And you, you see that, um, you know, what Balin and Hughes have talked about in their books that blocked care, um, that they talk about, uh, the ch child having blocked trust and the parent blocked care. And then the parents look, um, on the outside, just to us kind of cold and distant and, 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 and then that, then comes the judgment of the professionals. <laughs> You know, and the other people, you know, in the, in the life of the parent, you know, well-meaning relatives, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it, it, there's a lot of complexity and layers, isn't there? There are. There really, really are a lot of layers. I loved what you said um, about delighting in the parent, too, you know, and I think of um, Selma Freiberg in her seminal article, Ghost in the Nursery, when she said, you know, the parent will hear the cries of the child when their cries are heard. Basically, that's my paraphrasing. Um, and it, it's so easy to, um, I think our, our parents come in, as you were saying, pretty, pretty overwhelmed and perhaps battered and judged and, um, and impacted neurochemistry. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> They're having those PTSD reactions at this point, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, having had really intense violence in their own homes or um, scary moments that they were drowning in their own sense of helplessness or hopelessness. Yeah, yes. There's a lot of secondary trauma for a lot of the parents we see. Yeah, yeah. So how do you, um, so tell us a little bit more about the trauma play model. I know you have like an assessment you developed, you've already talked about the importance of parents or caregivers, you know, probably foster parents too, yeah, mm -hmm. perhaps, um, depending who you're working with. Um, can you give in a nutshell? I know that's really hard because I know your model's addressing so many domains, but like, what is it? Yeah, yeah what, what is trauma play? Yeah. <laughs> trauma play is a components-based model that is meant to be both sequential but flexible. Um, so it's based on what we know to be best practice in the field of child therapy um, in the sense that, you know, you're not going to open up a child's trauma narrative and have them looking at hard things before you've assessed for how do they handle hard things? You know, mm -hmm. how do they cope with big feelings? Um, so we're always going to do some coping assessment and augmentation before we do trauma narrative work, those kinds of things, that basic outline of seven components. And we're always going to enhance safety and security first. Um, one of the things about trauma play that um, many clinicians have just embraced um, is the idea that you can use both non-directive and directive methods in trauma play. So child center play therapy for some children might be exactly the right way in for establishing safety and security. In other cases, a child might need a more experiential model or might need to have some real uh, kinesthetically based tools that they can use as transitional objects to and away from th the therapy uh, room in order to feel safe. Um, it may be more looking at containment of perpetrator symbols in the play itself and doing some directive things there. 
Um, so almost any of the ways of working within the larger umbrella field of play therapy, as long as the goals align with the components of trauma play, all of that is uh, acceptable, allowable, delighted in. Um, it, you know, for me, all along the way when I'm supervising, what we talk about is what we want to be able to do as we grow as clinicians is to, to be watching um, almost like the, the therapy session is a video in front of us. And if we pause it at any given moment, we can say why it is that we're doing what we're doing right then. So it's not, it's not a specific model. It's not, you're going to use TheraPlay and you're going to use it all the way through for uh, 12 sessions or so. It may be that within one session of trauma play, you are doing some of that nurturing dyadic intervention, delighting in, but you may be doing soothing the physiology kinds of work on the front end or the back end of the session. Um, in fact, most of our trauma play sessions are punctuated by some getting in the room, mindfulness, regulation work, and then being able to put any necessary coping back in place at the end of a session to be able to go back in uh, to the real world afterwards. Um, so it's enhancing safety and security and then assessing for and augmenting coping. Um, then we look at soothing the physiology, and that's both all of the regulation kinds of work, uh, somatically, kinesthetically, play-based interventions with bubbles and feathers and all kinds of things that can be used just to help train kids and their parents and families in how to regulate, how to calm, um, and really not just how to calm, but one of the big themes of trauma play is regulation is not only about calming down, it's about staying within the window of tolerance, right? So that's one stream of soothing the physiology. And then the other is the parents as partners. So the younger a child is developmentally, chronologically, they might be 16, but if they're still around eight, socio-emotionally, the younger they are developmentally, the more important the parents as partners pieces are. And so years ago now, I developed a set of strategies um, along with some colleagues, um, Patty Van Ace and Linda Ashford, called the Soothe Strategies that are our um, co-regulation strategies, our offerings to parents for those moments when a child is not, we talk about it in terms of the question, is the child in his choosing mind? Um, mm -hmm. Very hard for families to know when do I use behavior management that is taught all over the world, you know, all over the place, every article I read. Um, and then when do I use a more attachment based way? When do I soothe? When do I insist that they move forward in life? Parents have these questions all the time. So the parents as partners piece is real important. And then we look at emotional literacy and um, the heart of trauma play is the play-based gradual exposure. So helping, you know, lots of kids can come into a fully equipped playroom and they can um, pursue social competence building or self-esteem building or even the attachment relationship with us as a therapist while perhaps still avoiding the crux of the traumatic content. Mm -hmm. um, it can be the whole, you know, trauma, uh, the avoidance symptoms of trauma are real um, mm -hmm. and part of the PTSD diagnosis and this idea that children may avoid the thing that's most scary for them. Play becomes a great vehicle for doing a dance of titration with them towards and away from the trauma content. So that's the, the meat of the model after we've done all those scaffolding pieces at the front. Um, and then we talk about addressing the thought life, uh, not because it's unimportant, but because it's so important. And you often can't get to it till you've gone through 
the trauma narrative work with a child. Um, I, I'm thinking of a, a young lady I worked with who was 16 and she, um, we had done a lot of other work already and she was at the point where she could do trauma narrative. And so I was using the sand tray with her and I asked her if she could put the trauma in the tray. And she looked exhaustively at my sand tray shelves trying to find a figure that looked a certain way. And I finally said, it looks like you're really searching for something. And she said, I need someone with a short skirt. And I said, oh, and so we looked together. And when she finally found that figure, the relief she was feeling internally kind of mitigated her saying, and she didn't mean to say it, but because that's why it happened. And she put it in the tray. Mm. And I could, until that moment, I hadn't understood that she carried that false attribution that I was raped in the parking lot of my school because I wore a short skirt. Mm. Uh, so sometimes we don't know some of that, the cognitive distortions that need some addressing until we're into the trauma narrative piece. And then finally, um, we talk about making positive meaning of the post-trauma self. So I don't know, um, you're in the South now, I know, but um, uh, lots of us in the South have sort of um, had a, a bit of a mentality that's like, forgive and forget, we're just going to forgive and forget. And um, while we certainly want to leach the emotional toxicity out of the trauma for a child and family, we want to help the family become the holder of the story mm -hmm. in a way that brings positive meaning to the child um, mm -hmm. and to the parent as, you know, they're, they really are everyday heroes at that point and trying to figure out, you know, some of the kids that I see who've been sexually abused, they come out of treatment much more savvy than even my own children because they've had such intentionality around addressing these concepts and so forth. So that's mm -hmm. part of that positive meaning for them. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that may have been a longer answer than you wanted, but that's trauma play in a nutshell. Yeah, no, no, it's fantastic. I, I, wonderful, very good. Exactly what, you know, an overview, like I was hoping you would share. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site at www.theknowledgecenteratchadock.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. This episode is part one in a two-part series with Paris Goodyear-Brown, so be sure to tune in next week for part two. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to the Knowledge Center at Chaddock.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.